You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Gregory D. Johnson is a former Fulbright Fellow in Yemen, a Ph.D. candidate in Near Eastern Studies at Princeton University, and the author of the blog Walk Al Walk. His essays on Yemen and Near East foreign policy have appeared in the New York Times, Foreign Policy, and Newsweek. He was also a Peace Corps volunteer in Jordan. His new book is The Last Refuge, Yemen, Al-Qaeda, and America's War in Arabia. Thank you for speaking with me, Gregory. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. What this book, as I read through it and finished it, brought home what to me was the importance of context in understanding the connections between different discrete events. We look at the news, we'll see this reported here, this reported there, this reported there, and each of the reports is clear, factual, truthful, or spun however the media will have spun it, but it They're not connected, and I think the power of your book is to give us turn all these events into story, and that's the important part. It's history. Story is a subset of history, and I'd like you to talk about choosing the scope of your book because I think you do a great job of giving us a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end that is fairly frightening. Right. Well, I'm I'm really glad that you picked up on the on the story aspect, because that's one thing when I was writing. And it took a really long time to to write, actually. It took about four years, and halfway through, I'd completed one draft, which was basically everything I knew about Yemen. And a friend of mine, a friend who'd studied in Cairo with me, read it and gave me a very good piece of advice. He said, you know, this is there's a lot of information, there's a lot of knowledge here, but it's just not a story. It's it's not a it's not a very good book. It doesn't make a good book. And so at that point I sort of threw everything away and started over from scratch. And I'm I'm much more pleased with the with the result that I that I ended up with because I, I do think there is a beginning and there is an end. The beginning starts in the 1980s, and it sort of talks about how al-Qaeda, how that ideology formed in Yemen, and then how the group sort of grew and expanded going up through September September 11, 2001, and then how it was defeated, and, and how Yemen actually, in the early years of September, uh, after September 11, 2001, was one of the real success stories in the war on terror. And then, of course, there was a prison break, and eventually al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula formed, and it's become a, a, a great threat once again, as we realized on Christmas Day 2009 and, and subsequently since. And what I tried to do in the end is sort of have an ending that would propel the reader into the future, and after having read this book, allow them to make sense of the news articles, as you talked about, that they were reading. That's one of the things that one of the things I think that works so well in this book for me is that having heard so much about uh, Osama bin Laden, what you do in this book is put him into context as a character. And we see him as a guy who is was born in Yemen, raised in Saudi Arabia, a fairly well-to-do family, but 
ultimately rejected. And that rejection really stung him and really drove him into the kind of extremes that, that uh, resulted in <laughs> many deaths. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that we tend not to, we in the West, tend not to think about when we think about Saudi Arabia, we, you know, we have this image of sort of the rich oil sheikhs and so forth. And, and to a degree, there there's some truth to that. But politically, the the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, if you're not born into the royal family, there's a reason they call it Arabia of, of, of the Sauds, the House of Saud, and this is where the country itself takes its name. If you're not a member of that family, there's a limit on how high you can go politically. And Osama bin Laden found that, and he was in the, in the first Gulf War in 1990 and 91. This is, of course, after the jihad in Afghanistan. Bin Laden brought his, his men back to Saudi Arabia, and he wanted to be the one that the Saudis relied on in expelling Saddam Hussein from Kuwait and protecting Saudi Arabia's oil fields. And one of the princes essentially laughed at him and said, you need to shut up and know your place. What are you going to do when Saddam starts lobbing missiles at you? There's no caves to hide in in the desert. And the Saudis, instead of relying on bin Laden and his Mujahideen veterans from Afghanistan, they turned to the Americans. And that was a real big breaking point in Osama bin Laden's life. And as you say, it led to thousands of deaths. And it's a, it's a war that those, those roots from that moment is something that all of us are still, still dealing with today. And uh, as well... The glory day, which you eventually becomes referred to as the glory days of jihad in Afghanistan, which is uh, really the inception point for this book. So talk about these glory days and, you know, fighting the new crusaders. And because, again, they saw themselves as fighting crusaders again, only this time it was atheists and communists. And as far as the U.S. was concerned at the time, those were also our enemies. Right. I, I think that's a, that's a great point, is sort of how it is that different people see particular conflicts. So for the, for the West, for the United States, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in, in late 1979 and then going into the 1980s, this was part of the Cold War conflict. And so the U.S. was very happy to have these Arab volunteers who would come and fight um, the Arabs didn't make that much of a difference on the ground, but they had a very big difference. They they made a big impact in the societies that they returned to. But those societies and those Arab fighters who went to Afghanistan in the 1980s didn't see fighting the Soviets as part of the Cold War. They saw this as a tradition going all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad 1,400 years earlier when they were called upon to defend Muslims who were being attacked by non-Muslims. And they saw the Soviets not as sort of the evil empire of Ronald Reagan, but rather as atheists who were fighting Muslims. And for many of these, there are a couple of individuals I talk about in the book and tell their stories. They had no idea where Afghanistan was. They'd never even heard of this place, but they listened to, to sheikhs and clerics in the mosque who really just got them so worked up about the atrocities that were taking place in Afghanistan that many of these young men deserted their families, left their homes, and, and got on a plane to a country that they'd never heard of, got there and, and eventually took up arms. And this was really the, those are, that's really the foundation of where al-Qaeda itself comes from. 
Now you talk about Assam and and uh, Bin Laden and Zolaki, and what happened was they divided the fighters, and rather than uniting them in victory, and and what started out as a kind of united jihad became a crime spree, as you write, masquerading as war. Yeah, um, after the after the Soviets withdrew in in 1989, sort of that that common enemy, the the Soviet Union, the Soviet troops in Afghanistan, had been this sort of pole around which this very rickety alliance of a lot of different Afghan groups, as well as a lot of Arab fighters, had, so they'd been able to ally and join themselves together because they were fighting this one common enemy. But once that enemy was removed from the equation then that rickety alliance broke down and you started to see all this crime. Eventually, Abdullah Azam, he was assassinated. And after that, really, the, the Arabs broke down. You have Bin Laden coming back to the, back to the Middle East. And, and what happened in Afghanistan is, as you say, it, it just became sort of this crime spree where everybody took over whatever they could find, held as much land as, as, as they could. And that eventually led to the Taliban and then bin Laden going way way back. So there are these there are these moments I think and one of the things that's that's important when we think about Afghanistan is the US paid a lot of attention to Afghanistan in the nineteen eighties and almost no attention to Afghanistan in the nineteen nineties. But just because the US and the Western media weren't paying attention to Afghanistan doesn't mean that there weren't very important things going on there. And now, as we know, of course, this is where really September 11th was planned. One of the things I think this book does really well is you will tell us things that as you, you're, you're really a, a good writer in terms of letting the reader come to conclusions and that you'll tell us things that are terribly alarming and 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 then we're left to come to these conclusions. And one of the things you... Yemeni history is very interesting too, because uh, Yemen started out as a as a Marxist state. Not yeah, wasn't terribly successful at that though. <laughs> right. Yeah, it did. Um, there, in fact, Yemeni history is is very fascinating, and that's one of the things that that first drew me to writing this book is is spending a lot of time in Yemen, listening to Yemenis tell their story, and it's just. It's one of those countries that the more you learn, the more you study, the more you're rewarded, because it really is such rich and fertile ground for a historian, or, or really for a, uh, a storyteller. And what happened in the 1960s is that there were essentially two parallel revolutions that were taking place. There was a civil war up in the north where a royalist um, a royalist family was fighting a republican regime, which was supported by Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was the president of Egypt at the time. So there was this royalist-republican civil war. And in the south, there was also a, a civil war, sort of a colonial war that was going on, because Britain had a crown colony in Aden. And eventually those two countries remained separate, much like East and West Germany. They had different governments, different countries. The South was essentially this very tribal place. This, uh, excuse me, the North was a very tribal place. The South had tribes, but they became this very very interesting mixture of a, of a Marxist government, but it was something when you read the, the dispatches in the 1960s, 1970s, and even up into the 1980s, 
um, what you see is you see communists and Marxists around the world who look at Yemen and just sort of scratch their head in wonder. Um, there's one uh, one point Castro sort of asks some of the Yemenis who are who are visiting when is, when will you guys stop killing each other? And and I think for for much of the world that was one of the questions is. These Yemenis call themselves Marxists, but they don't look like any Marxists anywhere else in the world. I have to say that there's a kind of a a rather entertaining undercurrent of humor in this book. uh, (laughs) Rare in a book about Al-Qaeda. Yeah, it's rather dark humor, but still it's, it's pretty funny in terms of their their. Uh, consistent incompetence, but uh, one of the things that that interested me too, the great character I think who presides over this book is Sali, and and he is so fantastic the way you draw him. So talk a little bit. Did you ever get? Have you ever spoken with him? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't spoken to him, which is is not for not for lack of trying. Um, I've spoken to many members of his family. I've spoken to a lot of people who are very close to him, and Yemen is a pretty small, it's a pretty small place. So I've been going there for a decade now, and you get to know a lot of the a lot of the figures at the top of government. But Ali Abdullah Saleh is a, as you say, he's a fascinating figure. This is a guy who comes from a very very poor family. His, you know, they're essentially, you know. Uh, peasant farmers, basically, is what they were. And when he was very young, he traveled from his his village just outside of the capital city, about 35 miles or so. He traveled into the capital city and became a, a soldier, a recruit, which was essentially one of two avenues that he had open, either become a farmer or become a, a foot soldier. He eventually joined the revolution that we talked about earlier and worked his way up to being a tank driver. And so at one point during the revolution, there are these great memories that people have of Ali Abdullah Saleh, this tank driver, motoring his tank down one of the main thoroughfares in the capital city and blasting away at what he thought were symbols of leftist progress. So with his tank, he shelled cinemas and he blew up a pharmacy. And eventually, after the Civil War ended in 1970, he worked his way up up the ranks of the military, became quite powerful. He's very... He's very charismatic, and he's an individual who handles personal relationships very well. He doesn't read a lot. Um, He's not particularly well-educated, but he's very wise in the ways of Yemen. And when his two immediate predecessors both died um, in very, very strange circumstances, both were assassinated, he put himself forward as president in 1978. And in fact, at this point, the CIA had a number of uh, analysts and none of them thought that he would survive more than six months in power. And of course, he lasted more than more than thirty-three years. At one point, he, you describe that uh, how he, you say that he uh, described ruling Yemen as uh, dancing on the heads of snakes. <laughs> what yeah, a this is great this, this is something that he that he loves to that he loves to mention. Um, he often thought ruling Yemen, as you say, is sort of dancing on the heads of snakes, that you could never really count on any one person or any one um, interest group for very long. So he, he, and he was masterful at this. He was able to keep Yemen deeply divided by first supporting one group against their enemy, then withdrawing that support and giving it to their enemy. And so no one ever really knew where it was that they stood, but he had this personal account 
out of which he would pay people in Yemen in order to buy their support, in order to to really be able to manipulate and, and move them. And there, there are so many fascinating stories about how he would sort of um, shell somebody with with one hand, so to speak, and then embrace them with the other. And, and that is really how he how he managed to rule first North Yemen and then after 1990, a unified Yemen. While he was setting up himself in Yemen, bin Laden had returned to Yemen after leaving Saudi Arabia, and he created this little organization that he called Al-Qaeda. This is in the early 90s. And Yemen was the first test, was their first test of trying to expel the infidels. Right, that, that's exactly right. In fact, there's the, the Arabic Hadith, which is, uh, in Arabic, it's Akhrajul Musharakin Min Jazirat Al-Arab, which is, expel the infidels from the Arabian Peninsula. And this is something that bin Laden took incredibly seriously. And so when he returned to Saudi Arabia after, after the war in Afghanistan, he really felt, he said, look, we've done a great job. And, and this is, you know, sort of the way of bin Laden to build himself up in his own mind, to have these grandiose images of himself to say, we expelled the Soviets from Afghanistan. There was no Americans. There was no sort of economic collapse within the Soviet Union. None of those other reasons. It was the Arabs who had expelled the Soviets. Now that we've done it in Afghanistan, we need to be able to expel the socialists, the atheists from Yemen as well. And of course, Yemen being his father's homeland, this was something that was very, very important for him. And that's what they initially tried to do. So Al-Qaeda, as you say, really did get its start in Yemen in, in 1992. This was their, their first attack that they carried out there. Bin Laden um, supported and built a number of terrorist training camps that would later come back to haunt both the Yemeni and U.S. governments. Now, one of the things that once bin Laden made up his mind to attack uh, the U.S. and Arabia, it, they they had some problems. They they would try these. Uh, they in 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 Saudi Arabia, they, he sent uh, Fadli, I, I guess it was, around, and they were killing people, but they were killing the wrong people, and it just got everybody upset with it. They said, these Al-Qaeda people are crazy. Yeah, Yemen in the early 1990s was a very chaotic environment. There was a lot, it's not actually unlike Yemen today, there are a lot of parallels. Yemen in 1990 unified, but when you unified, you had two presidents who came together, um, a guy who was a socialist in the South and Ali Abdullah Saleh, who we've talked about in the North, and they both set about trying to undermine one another. And so for a while, Saleh used people like bin Laden, other jihadis from Afghanistan, as a way to undermine what was going on in the South, while the Southerners were trying to undermine what was going in the North. So on the surface, you have this unified country, but underneath the surface, you have everybody sort of fighting each other, trying to maneuver for position. And the jihadis, al-Qaeda, really fit into that. So in the South, you had these roving bands of jihadis who would go out from these terrorist training camps, and they'd be carrying out all sorts of attacks, um, a lot of them targeting socialist politicians. But there were there were times when, you know, as as today, one of the things that I think we can be most thankful for is the incompetence of some of these people, whether it's the shoe bomber Richard Reed who was on a on a plane, whether it's the underwear bomber, that 
just the, the quality of people that, that are attracted to this organization is often much less than is needed to pull off a terrorist uh, attack. And that was true in the early 1990s, and thankfully it remains true today. Sala was made some uh, bad decisions back there in the 1990s, and you have a, a great description of what happens when he meets up with James Baker. And, and the resulting uh, the result of their uh, vote in in the UN, the most expensive Ooh. vote they ever cast. Right, um, President uh, then um, George H. W. Bush went to Saudi Arabia. This is um, right as it, at the end of 1990 when Saddam Hussein has invaded Kuwait. The Saudis are very worried, and President Bush sends his Secretary of State at the time, James Baker to Yemen to talk with Ali Abdullah Saleh. And the Saudis, of course, say, don't waste your breath. The guy's a little crazy. Um, James Baker goes there. And it's, it's right around Thanksgiving, of course. Instead of having Thanksgiving turkey, President Saleh serves him mutton. And they have this meal. President Saleh is very noncommittal. And then he gets out in front of the, in front of the, the press for the, for the press conference, and all of a sudden, President Saleh becomes full of life and very animated, and he starts giving one of his, his very bombastic speeches about how he won't support this. And the reason Yemen's, the reason, A, that Baker was courting President Saleh and that Yemen was so important is that Yemen had a, a, one of the 15 seats on the U.N. Security Council. And so when it came time to vote for the authorization for the use of, of force in the U.N. Security Council, Yemen voted no. And their ambassador got up and gave, again, a very bombastic speech that had been sent to him from, from Yemen. And uh, Secretary of State Baker scribbled on a note to one of his aides that that's the, uh, the most expensive no vote Yemen will have ever cast. And indeed, it turned out that way because the U.S. cut off aid Saudi Arabia cut off aid, but even more important than that was the fact that Saudi Arabia expelled about a million workers, a million Yemenis who'd been in the kingdom that went back, that were then forced to go back to Yemen. So not only did Yemen lose the remittances of those workers, which they really needed for their economy, but all of a sudden their economy had to do with a sudden influx of new workers for whom there were no jobs. And so it really took a, a very tremendous hit and this is right when the country unifies, so very damaging. And the real, the currency in Yemen, lost a great deal of its value. And in fact, it's continued to fall since then. You know, one of the things about this book that I think is so interesting is it shows us so many things that, um, as much as you do a great job of uh, weaving in all the events we do know about, there's a lot of stuff we didn't hear about. Uh, I never knew that bin Laden had been declared an infidel, which was really interesting. After uh, one of the uh, failed attacks that uh, I think that blew up some uh, Saudis. Right, right. So there, there are these um, this this group uh, led by a Sudanese guy, and and um, or, excuse me, this is when bin Laden is in is in Sudan, and I guess that's that's one of the things of a of a terrorist group, right? Is that you can, there's always somebody who wants you to be much more of a terrorist than, than you actually are or to be carrying out more attacks. And so this is in the mid-1990s. Bin Laden is sort of resting in Sudan. He has a, a farming enterprise. And, and one of the, you know, since September 11th, there have been a lot of books written about, about al-Qaeda, about terror, about war in the Middle East. 
And one for me that I really think is the gold standard is, is Larry Wright's book, The, the Looming Tower, which, of, of course, won the Pulitzer Prize. It's, it's just a fantastic book. And I think Wright is a great storyteller, and he writes in his book that in the, in the mid-1990s, it was Al-Qaeda and bin Laden were sort of on, uh, they were really at a crossroads. They could have went one way and become sort of a farming and a bureaucratic organization, or they could have went the other way, the way that they eventually did, and become much more of a terrorist organization. And so it's at this point when some of the younger, wilder members of, of the jihadi circles are really pressing bin Laden um, that they actually carry out an attack and attempt to uh, attempt to kill him, and they come quite close to uh, to assassinating bin Laden. Uh, bin Laden was also uh, driven by uh, domestic woes, as not in not as in our domestic, but in the loss of one of his four wives. Yeah, this is something. I mean, Bin Laden, his family. When I was my first experience in the Middle East was when I went to to Cairo to the American University of Cairo in in the spring of 2000 for a semester abroad. And right outside of their downtown um, campus at the time, there was this construction project going on. And the name on the back of all of the construction workers was this Bin Laden Construction Company. And that's who some of his wives felt they were marrying, was the very wealthy son of a wealthy family who had business dealings all over the Middle East, and they thought they would live a life of you know, flying to Paris, having yachts, having the best of everything. But instead, bin Laden eventually turned his back on that. And for the woman that he married very young, um, he became a much different person from the one whom she thought she was marrying. And eventually, um, when he was going to Afghanistan, he he let her go back to Saudi Arabia and uh, allowed himself to be, to be divorced from her because they, they just wanted different things. Of course, he eventually ended up taking um, an, another wife to replace her, a very young Yemeni woman, um, who uh, Amal Lashal, who was actually with him in bed and was wounded in the raid in Abbottabad when, when bin Laden was eventually killed. One of the things I think that uh, makes this book uh, so powerful is, are, is your vision of uh, Zawahiri, uh, so talk, talk a little bit about uh, his story, because he's got a great character arc in this book. Yeah, this is someone, and, and one of the things I, I think that we so often don't talk about is for a lot of us, Al-Qaeda started on September 11, 2001. But there's a very deep and a very rich history. And in fact, Ayman al-Bawahri led his own distinct group from Al-Qaeda for quite some time. And so there there's stories about... Um, individuals here in the book, um, uh, Dawahri goes to Yemen a number of times. There's even actually, this is one of the things that I think has haunted a lot of people in U.S. intelligence, as, as well as um, some of us who study this, that there was a time when there was an individual in, in late 1998 who came to the Yemeni intelligence service and offered to give up Ayman al-Bawahri, and offered to be a spy and infiltrate al-Qaeda. And unfortunately for him, the individual who was assigned to be his case officer was someone who was very close to the jihadis, someone who, 
who seem to have intimate work, intimate knowledge of both Ayman al-Bawahari's group as well as Osama bin Laden's. And he um, he actually turned the, the would-be traitor back over to, to al-Qaeda and back over to Ayman al-Bawahari's group. And this individual, um, he eventually gave them the slip, but the the traitor within the Yemeni intelligence services is now being held in Guantanamo Bay. So there are all these sort of, you know, it, there's a lot of, if you like spy novels, if you like thrillers, there are sort of these twists and turns where people aren't always who it is that they that they think they are, but what it is that we're dealing with today has very, very deep roots. It's really interesting it, um, to see these kind of, uh, the factions, the infighting between the different uh, splinter groups within al-Qaeda, and also uh, one of the themes of this book is clearly that um, many, if not all, of our failures in in the Middle East can be attributed to our unwillingness and to get to know uh, the culture on the ground. We don't bother yeah. to get to know the culture. We just blaze in and we don't even learn the basic courtesies of how they sit down to eat and how important mm-hmm. that is. Yeah, that's, you know, this is something that just in the past couple of days has really been brought home to me once again. In, in Early in the book, I talk about that one of bin Laden's driving motivation was American soldiers being stationed in Saudi Arabia and those bases. And that was something that, that, that Arabic hadith that I mentioned earlier that hadith expelled the infidels from the Arabian Peninsula is something that bin Laden took very seriously. It's something that the leaders of AQAP took and continue to take very, very seriously. For a long time, those bases in Saudi Arabia remained, up until the war in Iraq in 2003. And then they were, then they were eventually removed, and the U.S. felt as though it could sort of have an over-the-horizon presence and so it didn't need to have sort of the, the open sore of U.S. soldiers being stationed on Saudi soil. That's recently changed, as the New York Times and Washington Post revealed just this week, that there are now these drone bases that the U.S. has set up in, in Saudi Arabia to carry out attacks within Yemen. And one of the things that I worry is that we, as Americans, and that in the U.S. government, we tend to have a very short memory and we, we just don't seem to take away the lessons from history that are sometimes there, whether it's, as you mentioned, sitting down with people, sharing a meal, realizing what turning down an invitation, what sort of a, a social slight that carries in the Arab world, or whether it's something much bigger like this, where we don't um, learn what it is that's antagonizing our, our enemies. Late in the book, you quote somebody in Yemen as saying that, you consider al-Qaeda terrorism, we consider the drones terrorism. And that's a, that's a perception that I think we better get in our brains straight pretty quickly. Right. I mean, I you know, on the issue of drones, this is something that's been in the news a lot lately. Obviously, um, President Obama's nominee to be the new director of the CIA, John Brennan, just went and testified yesterday. And a lot of a lot of the questions that he dealt with had to had to deal with drones and i think i think drones are an amazing piece of technology but that we have to be and we here being the united states have to be very judicious and very wise about how it is that we use them because when they take out al qaeda members they can be very very valuable but when they hit the wrong target and when they kill civilians 
they can have a very radicalizing impact on what's happening on the ground there. And I think that's something that we here in the United States just don't have a very good grasp on. I was in I was in Yemen just a couple of months ago, after the um, right as the book was coming out, actually, and I was talking to some people, and actually I talked to an individual who'd been in a car that was um, that was attacked by a drone. He survived. He had a he had a broken arm, but the the hatred and the anger that some of these strikes are breeding on the ground. I'm very worried that the environment that many of these young men in places like Yemen are coming of age in today is much more radical than the environment of the late 1990s that gave birth to bin Laden and to the current leaders of AQAP. And I think that the U.S. has to be very careful that we're not sowing the seeds of future generations of terrorists today. Well, also, we have to. One of the, I think that uh, the part technology plays in this book is really fascinating. I mean, from the use of cell phones to the use of websites mm-hmm. to, of course, 9 11. And one thing we seem to have quickly forgot is how easy it is for our own technology to be turned against us. Yeah, there's, um, you know, the, the U.S. military and, and, and intelligence agencies have, the, have what they call these, these red teams where they um, will bring in these outsiders to look at something often in, in sort of war games. And one of the things that is often flummoxed um, military planners is when a red team comes in and instead of using the, the best technology, it goes, it goes sort of retro and it, it undercuts the technology because the U.S. is really, particularly the U.S. military, is often designed to fight an enemy that just that looks exactly like the U.S. military. But so often the enemies that the U.S. military actually fights are those that bear little resemblance. And it's, you know, it's sort of the war of the flea that's often talked about. And technology is, is quite fascinating in how it is that al-Qaeda uses it. One of the things that we've seen recently is when al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, this group in Yemen, took over villages, they were able to, because literacy is so is so low and because there is very little electricity, they put a lot of stuff out on the Internet, but it wasn't having the impact that they wanted it to have. So they took those sort of Internet manifestos and they photocopied them, and they handed them out to people. And in Yemen, there are these things called kotchus, where 20 or 30 men will sit together and they'll chew this green leaf that they stick in the in the in their cheeks, and they'll chew it for about six to eight hours. And so Al Qaeda would have at these groups people who could read, and they would read out the statements to the people assembled. So even if you were illiterate, even if you didn't have electricity, Al-Qaeda still found a way to get their message out. And uh, as well, you talk about uh, uh, some of the, the rhythmic poems and, and some of these mm. things, they, the way they will spread the, the glory of, of, of some of their achievements. Yeah, absolutely. Poetry is something which, um, I mean, I don't, I think it's been lost a lot in, in the U.S. In the fall, I like to read Donald Hall, who's one of my favorite poets. Um, but, but here in the U.S., it, it doesn't have the same, the same meaning as it does in a place like Yemen, where to be a poet is really to put yourself... It's sort of how we think of, of novelists here in the United States. Uh, poem, 
poets have a, have a very treasured place in society. And for the jihadis, when they're able to recite these sort of long rhythmic, what are called nasheeds often, um, they they have a very powerful impact on the society. You hear young men sort of walking around the streets chanting them. Often they'll be recorded on audio cassettes and now on CDs that are sold in these um, little ramshackle kiosks all over the country. And you'll hear it and you'll be able to recite. And it really is quite amazing how a popular and well-turned phrase will sort of spread all over the country, even without the benefit of something like TMC or Us Weekly or any of those. You know, uh, one of the things I thought was so interesting was the the birth of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which comes out of uh, Salih's uh, ability. He, at one point, had put a bunch of these guys in jail, and, but that proved to be a real breeding ground. You talk in the, about the, the, the prison cells, and when you're talking about that, you're not referring to the cells in which they were kept, but the, the cells of al-Qaeda who were breeding, uh, turning into really disciplined fighters and uh, escapees. And one of the things I thought was so interesting was the Hitar program. <laughs> which is, I think, uh, uh, the uh, kind of uh, anti-Islamic equivalent of gay conversion, and <laughs> right. just as effective. Yeah, so I, I think you're you're absolutely correct. Is that you know President Saleh essentially has the same had the same problem that President Bush and and now President Obama have, which is he has all these guys that he's worried that they're too dangerous to release but he doesn't really have enough evidence to convict them in a court of law. So the U.S. has Guantanamo Bay, which no one really knows what to do with now that now that it's in the state that it is. President Obama has tried to close it, been unable, and so forth. In Yemen, President Saleh had, the, had essentially the same problem. He had a lot of guys in prison, but he didn't know what to do with them, because after September 11th, under a lot of pressure from the U.S., Yemen had arrested all of these individuals. Many of them they didn't have evidence against, but the, the thing they were worried about was that they all harbored some sort of sympathy for al-Qaeda. So they poured them into prisons. What they did, and unwittingly, is that there were some hardcore al-Qaeda members, but there were a lot of very young guys who hadn't been to Afghanistan, didn't have a lot of training. And the thing that happened is that in these prisons... Basically, some of these al-Qaeda leaders used these conversations late at night to sort of recreate um, what, what one guy actually called a uh, training camp of the mind. So instead of sort of the monkey bars and the firing ranges that we're familiar with from footage from Afghanistan, they had these little Quranic sessions, and they had sessions in which older men would, would counsel and, and would fast with younger men. And the bonds that are formed in prison prove to be incredibly, incredibly strong. And so if we look at where it is that the current threats that we're all worried about come from, many of them have their roots in these prisons in places like Yemen. And you mentioned um, Al-Hitar, which is a guy, a Yemeni judge, a uh, descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, a man by the name of Hamoud al-Hitar. I've, I've spoken with him a number of times. He's a very... He feels very strongly in what it is that he's doing, but he his program was... A, basically, he had the idea that, look, 
these guys, they don't really believe this Al-Qaeda stuff. They're just, they're confused young men. And so if someone very smart like myself, someone who understands the Quran and all of its grammatical complexities, which the Quran is a very, very difficult book. It's written in the Qurayshi dialect of, of Arabic. And a lot of it wasn't even put down until after the Prophet Muhammad had, had died. So there's a lot of a lot of very difficult issues in this book. And, and Hitar sort of had, he, he has a very professorial air to him. And I think that graded on a lot of the prisoners that he tried to, essentially tried to rehabilitate. Hitar talks about it as defusing ticking time bombs. But it was the superior attitude that he had, that he understood the Quran, and they didn't, and they were misled, that eventually caused a lot of problems. And the people that Al-Hitar let out through rehabilitation, uh, many of them, later went on to carry out attacks either in Iraq or to rejoin al-Qaeda there in Yemen. You tell a story in here about a prison break that is simply mind-boggling and actually rather funny, given where they ended up once they broke out. Tell right. us a little bit about this prison break. Right. So this is in February of 2006. And what's happened is there's this major maximum security prison in Sana'a. It's sort of, it's almost laid out the prison building itself like a Star Trek battleship. It has sort of a long cylindrical body, a couple of uh, slanted wings on the back. And there was a problem, just like in the United States, there was a problem in Yemen of prison overcrowding. And this was largely a problem because so many Yemenis wanted to go to Iraq to fight the U.S. there that President Saleh was forced to arrest them and put them into prison. But by arresting so many people, of course, there was overcrowding. So then they had to move many of the prisoners from the main prison body out to an annex. And it was in this prison annex that the, that the prison break actually took place. There's about 23 guys, and they were all sort of crammed together into this little two-room cell. And they found a way to pry up the tiles on the floor. And, of course, Yemeni buildings being what it is that they are, you can have as much security in the walls and the roof as you want. But if the, if the weak point is the, is the floor, then that's, uh, that's where the prisoners are going to go. And, and they sort of used um, some spoons that they had that their family members brought in with their meals. They were able to chip through a thin layer of, of concrete. And it took them about almost two months, but they eventually tunneled out of this prison um, and into the mosque next door. And they came up in the, in the mosque morgue, which is, of course, the least used room in the mosque, so a sort of million-to-one shot. You know, this is uh, Steve McQueen and the Great Escape, if you will. These 23 guys tunnel out, uh, come up in the, in the mosque, and they sort of brush themselves off, clean themselves up. They say their morning prayers about 4.35 in the, in the morning, and then they join the rest of the sleepy worshipers and walk right out the front door of the mosque to, to freedom. And that, that is really the genesis moment of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. One of the things that I think you do quite well is to put the frighteners on. <laughs> you give us first a darkly humorous attempt at an assassinating uh, a, a Saudi uh, mm -hmm. prince where the would-be bomber actually manages to get right in the same room with, him, with the prince. Yeah. But unfortunately, 
the way the bomb was designed and where it was placed, uh, that didn't work out so well. Right. So this is an attempt that takes place in 2009. And we're all familiar now when we go to the airport and we sort of stand in that scanner that goes all around us to, to make sure that we don't have any bombs inserted up our rectum or in any other places. And the guy who's building these bombs is a man by the name of Ibrahim Asiri. He's a Saudi who's a member of AQAP, and he built this bomb in August of 2009, and he actually gave it to his younger brother, and he sent his brother across the border into Saudi Arabia. And this is one of those spy v. spy things that has been going on for for quite some time between al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and Saudi intelligence and U.S. intelligence. And so one of the things that happened is that in early 2009, a former Guantanamo Bay detainee had given himself back up to the Saudi authorities. And so al-Qaeda said, hmm, let's see if we can use that success, the success that Saudi Arabia had, against it. And so they sent this bomber with the, with the bomb inserted up of his rectum. They sent him into Saudi Arabia, and he was claiming to be someone else who wanted to turn himself in. He got very close to the head of Saudi intelligence, and then he detonated the bomb. But because it was up his, up his rectum, so to speak, his body bore the brunt of the blast, and the prince, who was standing just a few yards away, um, escaped with very, very minor injuries. But that was, that bomb, the way it was made and the way it was utilized was the precursor to what we found out on Christmas Day 2009 when another bomber, instead of inserting it up to his rectum because of the problems they'd had in Saudi Arabia, sewed it into his underwear and then tried to bring down the Northwest airliner over to Detroit. Now, one of the things that uh, that is very clear, you make very clear, is um, our perception of the way we're fighting this war in, and we are really fighting a war in Yemen at mm-hmm. this point. Um, if we're sending these drones in there, is that uh, when we uh, strike, when there's a drone strike, um, perception is that any male of fighting age. Is, a, is not a civilian casualty. They mm-hmm. are casualties of war. And I think this is a, a very um, important uh, distinction that causes us a lot of problems. Right. And this is something where, you know, it's a very difficult problem for the U.S. government because if you think of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, that was largely Arabs in a non-Arab country. But if you think about al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, this is Yemenis in Yemen. And so just like all of us, they have different identities. And so the U.S. might target, say, a group of individuals, um, and maybe they actually are affiliated with al-Qaeda, and the U.S. kills them. On the ground, they're not seen as their identity or their allegiance to al-Qaeda as being the important thing, but rather their identity as tribesmen. So, for instance, I'll give you an example, which just happened a couple of months ago. I was, I was in Sana'a, and Sana'a has, which is the capital of Yemen, has had all sorts of, all sorts of bla- blackouts, problems with electricity. One morning, a court in Sana'a sentenced two individuals to life in prison for being members of al-Qaeda. That evening, 
the tribes of those individuals attacked an electrical station, which sent the, the capital into, um, you know, cut off all electricity to the capital. So there were several days of no electricity. And it was all because even though they were members of al-Qaeda, they were still seen as tribesmen, and their tribesmen had to defend them. And this becomes even more of a problem when the U.S. carries out an attack and kills someone who has no allegiance, no identity within al-Qaeda. Their tribes are still very, very upset. And so what we've seen in Yemen is that over the past three years, as the U.S. has been carrying out these bombing raids and these bombing attacks, instead of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula getting weaker, the group has actually gotten stronger. So on Christmas Day 2009, the day that al-Qaeda put the bomb on the plane bound for Detroit, they were about two or 300 individuals. And now, more than three years later, and after three years of U.S. bombing raids, they're well over 1,000. In fact, the State Department says a few thousand fighters, which is an incredibly rapid amount of growth in a remarkably short amount of time. Well, I, I mentioned earlier how you had, a, 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 I thought, a good knack for... Um, stating things and letting the readers draw conclusions. And one of the things you talk about earlier in the, somewhere in the middle of the book is about uh, the schools that were teaching, you know, I think we would call them the Madras schools. Mm -hmm. in, in Yemen, they produced 600,000 people, as you put, right. graduated ready to join al-Qaeda. That's a, a pretty scary number of members of al-Qaeda. Yeah, this is, and, and it's one of the things that I think that, the U.S. really, you know, from the outside, Yemen looks exotic, it looks foreign, and when you go, when you land in Sana'a for the first time, what you'll often see is a lot of guys with beards and a lot of guys with guns and a lot of guys with beards and guns talking about Islamic law. It's sort of, you know, almost the Tom Clancy version of what a member of al-Qaeda would look like. And you see this everywhere. You, you see a lot of these individuals. And thankfully, not all of the 600,000 who went through these religious schools uh, go on to become al-Qaeda members. But I think the thing that these schools have done and the thing that they continue to do is it's almost like a gateway drug. It sort of provides a stepping stone for many people to get to um, accepting the ideology and the theology of al-Qaeda. Because on the ground, and when you read what it is that al-Qaeda puts out in Arabic, the theology is very, very shallow, and the ideology is something that the group really struggles to get its message, its message out. But um, there are still a number of young men who are willing to join up, and as the body counts continue to grow in Yemen, there, there do seem to be more and more who are willing to join the organization. You give some great and I think very compelling uh, character studies of people who's, um, there's a, a fellow whose brother joins al-Qaeda, but he doesn't want to. He's got a wife, and he has a kid, some kids, and he has a job. And I think this points to the idea that, you know, if these young men had something to do other than stand around with rifles and complain about the heat and dust in America, that maybe... <laughs> They might be less inclined to to do that because there's a guy, a couple people who quit Al Qaeda. Say this this jihadi thing. That's a young man's game, not my right. game. Right. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. You know, you know, one of the guys who I've grown close to in my time going back and forth to Yemen 
is this guy by the name of Nasser al-Bahri, and he was bin Laden's bodyguard from 1996 all the way up to 2000, fought in Afghanistan. And he's someone who's left the organization and wants no part of it. And, and essentially, he's saying basically what you are, that this is a young man's game. The, the really worrying thing for me, and I think for a lot of people in the U.S. government, is that Yemen is largely a country of young men. Most of the, most of the population is under the age of 25. And so the potential recruiting pools for al-Qaeda, instead of getting smaller, are actually getting bigger. But, yeah, there, are, there is a – when you're on the ground in Yemen, there's just a, a shocking lack of opportunities for people within Yemen. And one of the things that I don't think is understood very well is that Yemenis themselves aren't ignorant about the world around them because of technology, because of the Internet – they can get on the Internet and look at the screen and get some sense, not a perfect sense, but some sense of what life is like in the West or even what life is like in Dubai or in Abu Dhabi or in Saudi Arabia. And so they know that their lot in life is not how it is everywhere in the world. But when they turn away from that computer screen, they're once again faced with the reality of their world, which is a lack of economic prospects. And a lack of economic prospects often means that they can't marry and they can't have a family. And many of these young men are incredibly frustrated, incredibly angry, and they don't really see a way out. And for them, Al-Qaeda comes along, and Al-Qaeda speaks in a way that sounds very familiar. It sounds traditional even though what it is that al-Qaeda is ultimately proposing is something quite new and something quite different from the traditional Islamic means. I think, um, you know, as we turn uh, past the last page of this book, I think one of the things that is so interesting is to, having read the book, it really gives us an idea of how to put together stories that we see, individual discrete stories that we see in the news, fit them into the bigger picture. And that's what I think is so important about the difference between, say, this book and a series of news articles or watching TV or any of that is that when you sit down and read the story, and I think the reading part is really important as opposed to like mm -hmm. seeing it on TV. I think that reading it, you have to actually, as a reader, you have to put together the story yourself. That's part of the process. Right, And I think that that's really important, especially with a book like this, to get that story feel going so that you understand. Now, when I see reports, I can kind of slot them in past the end of this book, which just basically says, you're in a, we got a lot of people out there who don't like us a lot. You now know the story of why they don't like us a lot, and you now know how easy it is for them to, to do things that will, you know, kill people and undermine their civilization and ours. Right, and I'm, I'm really glad that you picked up on the, on the story aspect, because I do think that there are, you know, as I said, there are so many books about al-Qaeda that just talk about it from a policy perspective and are meant to be read by policymakers. But when I, you know, when I was writing this book, I wanted it to be something that could be read as a story that you could get to know the characters and think of them as individuals and get to know what it is that motivates them. And I was helped a great deal in this by, by Brian O'Neill, who's a great friend and is always the first one to read anything I write, as well as my editor at Norton, Brendan Curry, who did just an absolutely fantastic job editing the book. And so any success I've had 
in actually telling a story and putting you in Yemen and giving you a, a glimpse of a place that is very confusing, but once you read this book, will begin to make a little bit more sense. That has a lot to do with the, the combined efforts of those two men. Well, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about what we should look at in the next coming months, thing, signs that things could be getting better or that they could be getting worse. Right. So one of the things that's just come out today is that al-Qaeda signed a truce with the Yemeni government, but the Yemeni government backed out at the last minute and has pulled back from that truce. And so one of the things that um, I think we all need to be concerned about is exactly what it is that al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is doing. The vast majority of the individuals that I talk about in the book are still alive. The bomb maker is still alive. The head of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is still alive. And just because we don't hear about them in media reports doesn't mean that they're not doing things on the ground in Yemen. In fact, the, the end of the book quotes a eulogy for one of the al-Qaeda leaders who's, who's killed, who says that in the coming days, al-Qaeda will have a surprise for the United States. And so I know this is something that keeps people like John Brennan and President Obama very concerned and very worried and very focused on Yemen. And the Yemeni military and the Yemeni political situation is incredibly fractured and fragmented, which has opened up a lot of room for al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So as much as I would like for all of us never to have to hear about al-Qaeda in Yemen again, unfortunately, I think this is a group that's, that's going to be with us for the foreseeable future. And we, as the United States, need to take a very wise and a very pragmatic course in how it is that we go about defeating this organization. I, I will say one of the things that's most frustrating for me as someone who travels back and forth from the United States to Yemen is that the U.S. has more money, the U.S. has more men, the U.S. has more munitions, and in this, the U.S. is self-evidently on the right side of the argument and yet still in a place like Yemen, on the ground, we're losing. And I think we can and we should do better. You recently came out against uh, John Brennan in, on, in the New York Times. Uh, I'd like you to talk about uh, your role as a scholar and a commentator uh, in the New York Times. This is a very different kind of uh, a form of writing for you. Right. Uh, it's it's a, the opinion essay versus the story. I, I read the essay. I thought it was uh, powerful and well argued. Right. I, I much prefer the uh, I much prefer the story form. I feel like, as you've said, you know, being being even-handed, allowing the readers to come to their own conclusion. That that's something that I think works most powerfully for me as a reader, as someone who enjoys, I, I enjoy stories. I love fiction. I love short stories. I'm reading a lot of George Saunders along with the rest of the rest of the country right now. And I, that, that for me is the most enjoyable form of writing. But there are times I think, you know, I'm someone who I've been a member of the Peace Corps. I've, I've been a Fulbright and a Fulbright Hayes fellow. I've taken money and support from the U.S. government in order to get training in Arabic or in order to get support to continue my education. And that, as well as the support that I've, that I've been granted to go to places like Yemen, I think has given me a, a unique set of skills. And there are times in which I feel 
you know, that it's it's my duty as a, as a citizen to speak out about what it is that I that I see and to make the best argument possible. Now that doesn't mean that that policymakers always listen. I've testified be, before the before the Senate, and I, I often give a lot of different talks to to government organizations. And many times, the individuals in government have other concerns than I do. They take a much broader view of the entire world as opposed to focusing on one very small place. But there are times in in which I think that someone who's been trained and who's taken money has a responsibility to to speak up and to say what it is that they think. I I believe John Brennan's been a very dedicated public servant um, for quite a long time, and I think that that personally he cares very deeply for this country. He's very patriotic from everything that I've seen and read about him. Where, Where I disagree is in the policies and the prescription that he's overseen in places like Yemen. And so I, I would have been much more in support of someone like Michael Morell or someone else taking um, the lead as the new director of the CIA. But that's obviously an argument that, that I lost, which is, which is perfectly, perfectly fine. I've been speaking with Gregory D. Johnson. His new book is The Last Refuge, Yemen, Al-Qaeda, and America's War in Arabia. He's also the author of the blog Walk All Walk. Thank you for speaking with me, Gregory. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.